Good morning. I'd like you to join me in the book of James, chapter 1. Preachers are often criticized for scratching people where they're not itching. For answering questions that nobody's asking. For slaying giants that nobody's facing. You can't accuse James of that. In the first 12, 13 verses, he scratches us where we all itch. In the area of trials, tribulations, problems, unforeseen difficulties, troubles. And now in verses 13 to 18, he scratches us in another area where we all itch. And that's the area of temptation. And as we pointed out last week, James uses the same Greek word for both trials and temptations. And that is the Greek word parismos. And we can differentiate whether an incident is a trial or a temptation by two general things. Number one is its direction. Trials come from the outside. Verse 2 says we fall into them. It's the same word Jesus used in the parable of the Good Samaritan when he said a man went from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell amongst thieves, unexpectedly dropped into those trials. Trials come from the outside. They're external. Temptations come from the inside. You are enticed into them. They are internal. And sometimes what comes from the outside as a trial, turns into something internal, a temptation in our life. And I think that's why James uses the same, same word for both, parismos. First, we distinguish it by its direction. Secondly, by its purpose. Trials come for a positive reason. Temptation has a negative reason. The intent of trials is good, The intent of temptation is bad. The intent of a trial is for your approval. The intent of a temptation is for your failure. And let me add right here, whether it's a trial or a temptation, they are morally neutral. It's not wrong to have a trial. And it's not wrong to have a temptation. But what you do in the midst of that trial or temptation determines the outcome. For example, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1 says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus was tempted. It's not wrong to be tempted. In fact, the Spirit of God led him up into the wilderness for that sole purpose of being tempted. But you see, God's purpose and Satan's purpose were quite different. The Holy Spirit allowed him to be tested to prove his righteousness. Satan wanted to produce unrighteousness. We see the same example in the life of Job. 
book of Job tells us that there was a day when Satan came before God. Guess who brought up Job? God did. God said, Satan, what you been up to? And he said, I've been roaming around on the earth, just walking here and there, just cruising Broadway. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? God brought up his name. One of the things my dad taught me was never call the IRS. Because they'll pull your file up and they'll keep it on top. And you'll be sorry. The other day I broke that rule. The Missouri contacted me uh, because Lisa worked 11 months and I didn't know how to fill out my form and so I filled it out and they sent me a letter and said I owed them some more money. And I looked at my return and I was upset and I'm like, no I don't. So I called them. The lady's looking over my return for 2010 and says, yeah, you, you made a mistake here and the percentages are wrong and here's what it should be and here's how it is and that's what you owe. And then she got quiet on the phone. And I said, are you still there? And she said, yeah, but I'm looking at your 2009 form now. I kept trying to engage her in conversation. <laughs> just, just let me go. I'll, I'll write the check. Well, Satan comes before God and God says, have you noticed Job? And then when Satan wants to go after Job, God allows it, but he sets the parameters on how far he can go. You can take his family and you can take his things but no more and then you can take his health but you can't take his life you see God's purpose was to prove righteousness Satan's purpose was to provoke unrighteousness Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17 says by faith Abraham when he was tested, parosmos, offered up Isaac. Who tested him? God did. But then when we come to James chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, he himself does not tempt anyone. Same word, parosmos. You say, wait a minute. Does God parosmos or does he not parosmos? Well, it's all about the purpose. You see, God uses trials to test you, to bring out your best qualities. But he never uses temptation to entice you to do evil. Where does that kind of temptation come from? Well, as we just saw, it comes from Satan, and it comes in James chapter 1 and verse 14, from your own lust. You say, well, Dan, if... God doesn't tempt anyone, then why does He tell us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, do not lead us into temptation? If I have to ask God not to lead me into temptation, then the implication is that He will lead me into temptation, and James says He won't do that. You say, well, it must mean, it's the Greek word parosmos, you say it must mean trials. In which case, I would be praying, God, don't give me trials to make me strong in my faith. That doesn't work. 
So what is the intent of the Lord's Prayer? Well, I think it's this. We are to pray, Lord, stop me at the point where my trial is still a test and don't let it turn into a temptation. And the next phrase in the prayer really indicates that because it says, but deliver us from evil, or literally, deliver us from the evil one. Don't let my test become an opportunity for Satan to wipe me out. Keep my tests tests, and don't let them become temptations. But when they do become temptations, verse 16 of James chapter 1 says, don't be deceived. And we looked at this last week. Don't be deceived into blaming God like Adam did when he said, the woman that you gave me, she caused me to sin. It's your fault, God, you set me up. Don't blame God because, verse 13 says, God never tempts you. And don't be deceived into thinking that's, that, or into blaming Satan or blaming your circumstances or blaming the world around you. Because verse 14 says your biggest problem is you. When you have temptation, it comes from your own lust. And thirdly, don't be deceived into thinking that sin happens at that moment when it becomes visible to everybody else around you. Because verse 15 tells us sin begins at conception. It begins when your lust forms that illicit relationship with your will. And a baby is conceived. And that baby is sin. And when sin is birthed and full grown, it becomes death. LSD. Lust, sin, death. That's always the progression. And then fourthly, don't be deceived by your pain or your failure into twisting your concept of the nature of God. Because verse 17 tells us, God only gives you good things. Look at verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now this is a great verse when you're in a trial. Whether it's a, an outward trial or an inward temptation, this is a great verse for us to get a hold of. Because when we fall for temptation, when we, like the fish, fall for the bait, why is it? Well, it's because we have bought into Satan's sales pitch when he says, I've got something God doesn't have. I've got something really good for you that is really going to satisfy you. And what does this verse say? It says, the truth is that every good thing comes from God. How many? Some? No. Every good thing comes from God. And so if every good thing comes from God, how many good things come from Satan? None. So when he puts that bait out there and says, this is really good, this will really satisfy you, this will really make you happy, that's a lie. And then secondly, if you look at this verse, the truth is that every perfect gift 
comes from God. And that word perfect is the same word we saw in verse 4, reflective of ourselves. It is the idea of being complete and lacking in nothing. That is, satisfying you fully. You see, when your desires are not satisfied, don't look below for the answer. Look above for the answer. Because this verse says every good gift and every perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights. It's coming down. That that phrase coming down is a continuous present tense. It's not intermittent rain. It is continuous. It is showers of blessing. Good gifts and perfect gifts are continually coming down from God. And whatever you're experiencing, He's always the same. And that's what the end of this verse is saying. He doesn't change. He doesn't get moody like you do. In fact, look at what James calls him. He says it's coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, why does he call him the Father of lights? Well, the word lights here is literally the word luminaries. It refers to the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. He's saying God is the Father of all the luminaries in the sky. And he never changes. He never varies. He doesn't have one single shadow. Now, what's the illustration? Well, think about it. We say, when it gets dark, the sun set. Did the sun actually set? No. Come on, work with me, science students. The sun never moved. What happened? The earth turned on its axis. So when it is pitch dark outside, guess what? The sun is still shining. We have just turned our back on the sun. God's good gifts and God's perfect gifts just keep coming. And when you're not experiencing those, guess what? It's because you turned your back on Him. And the exciting thing is, he says, it's kind of a reminder. He says, every time you see a shadow extending out, or you see some variation happening because of creation, it should remind you that the one that created it all never varies, never changes. He's always the same. He is my Father in heaven who continually gives me good and perfect gifts. So when temptation comes, it's always that temptation. I'm going to find something over here away from God that's going to be better. And that is the lie of all lies. Because God never changes. He is continually blessing you with good and complete gifts. You say, well, all right. If God is not tempting me, then where is he when I'm struggling with lust? Well, let me show you a verse that answers that question. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 should be a familiar verse. And 
And again, in this verse, the word translated temptation is that word parosmos. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and underline this, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Even when your trial has digressed into a temptation. God hasn't left you alone. God is faithful. And this verse tells us that He faithfully is doing three things. He is making sure that your temptation is common, bearable, and escapable. Let's look at that. First of all, he's making sure that your temptation is common. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Did you ever think when you're in the middle of a temptation or a trial that this must be greater than anybody else's? Nobody's got troubles like me. Nobody's got trials like me. Nobody has the temptation that I go through. Well, this passage tells us that we don't have any temptation that isn't common to everybody else. You see, yours are not unique. They're not different. They're not new. In fact, interestingly, this word common is literally the word that means human. They come with being human. And whatever trials you're experiencing, your neighbor is experiencing as well. They're common. There's nothing unique about them. In fact, that's evident when we look in the Scripture and we see that even the heroes of the faith experience the same kind of temptations and even the same kind of failure we do. Moses got, or Noah got drunk. Abraham lied to Pharaoh. Moses disobeyed the Lord by striking the rock the second time. Jacob was a cheater and a deceiver. Elijah complained and grumbled and whined. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Jonah rebelled and pouted. Peter denied the Lord. John Mark defected. They have the same failures that we see around us because temptation is common to man. There are no unique ones for you. In fact, let me tell you this. Even the temptations that Jesus went through were common temptations. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in all things as we are. Common temptations to you and me. He could not have had a supernatural temptation. You know why? Because James chapter 1 and verse 13 says that God cannot be tempted. So you can't tempt God. So the temptation that Jesus had were just human temptations. They were common temptations. They were the same kind of temptations that you and I have. And that's why later in the book of James in chapter 5 and verse 16, 
he says we are to confess our sins to one another. We're to tell our brothers and sisters, not everybody, pick, who, pick carefully who you share those with, but you're to confess your sins to one another. Why? Because they understand. They have the same temptations. They have the same problems. And we are to bear one another's burdens. It's important that we share those. You say, well, I would be embarrassed to share those. I mean, if I told you what I did in my life, you'd be shocked. Shocked? Have you done something nobody else ever did? No. Temptation is common, and it leads to common sin. That's why in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, all that is in the world. How much? All that is in the world is contained in three little phrases. You know what they are? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's it. That's everything that's out there. It's contained in those little phrases. Lust of the flesh, pleasure. Lust of the eyes, possessions. Pride of life, prestige. It's those three things that compromise temptation. Or what's the word I'm looking for? Contain temptation. Correct the tape when I'm done. You're not experiencing a temptation that nobody else has because we all have the same temptation. They are common. Now let me tell you something exciting about that. You have got human temptations and divine resources. That's pretty good. Because greater is he that is in you than what? He who is in the world. So he says your temptations are just common. God makes sure they stay common. They stay human. You've got human temptations, but you've got divine resources to handle those. That's pretty exciting. So when you're in the midst of a temptation, God is doing something. He's making sure that your temptations are just common. Secondly, God is faithful in that he makes sure your temptation is bearable. If you look at verse 13 again, he says, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. Isn't that good? Remember in John chapter 18, when they came to arrest Jesus, and they came into the garden, all these soldiers, and they had weapons and lights and torches and everything, and they came into the garden to Jesus, and Jesus said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am. And they all fell down. And they dusted themselves off and got back up, and Jesus said, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am. Therefore, let these go. And it says he said that to fulfill the prayer he had had in the previous chapter that had only happened a few hours earlier in John 17 to fulfill this part of the prayer that said, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Take me, but let them go. Why? Because at that point in their life, they were not ready to handle that kind of trial or temptation. 
guess what? Later in their life, at least 10 of those disciples were martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were arrested. They were put to death. What was the difference? At the point in the garden, they weren't able to bear it. Later in their life, they were able to bear it. And God said, I'll let it come. Some of you are wondering, why in my early years as a Christian was everything so easy? And did I seem to skate through life and now I'm hitting all these trials and difficulties and problems? Why is it? Because God knows what you can bear. You couldn't handle it then. He knows you can handle it now. Now what's the application of that? That means you can never say, I can't take anymore. Because guess what? You can take more. Because if you couldn't handle what you're in, God wouldn't allow that. He's allowing what you're handling. You simply need to look to Him for the resources to handle it. So when you're struggling with a temptation, God is faithfully ensuring that they're common, that they're bearable, and thirdly, that they're escapable. Look at the end of verse 13. But with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape also that you will be able to endure it. God always provides the way of escape. You say, well, what is it? When it's an outward trial, the way of escape is to go through it. You always go through trials. That's why He says at the end of the verse that you may endure it. James says that you may stay under it. It's like the weightlifting analogy. You've got to stay under the weights to get the positive outcome. Trials are like a tunnel. You have to go through them. Now, my experience is we all understand this when it's happening to somebody else. We always pray for that person that's in the midst of a trial, and we say, Lord, bring him through it. Teach her the things you want her to learn. But when it's our trial, what do we pray? Lord, get me out of here. You see, we understand it in the context of somebody else's life. You have to go through the trial to experience the good that God has for you. So when it's an outward trial, the way of escape is to go through it. There are no shortcuts. You have to go through it and learn from it and grow from it into who God wants you to be. Now, when it's a temptation that you're experiencing, which is when it's enticement to evil, God provides a way of escape. You see, you can never sin and say, I had no other choice. I had no way not to do it because God always provides with the temptation, there is a way of escape. You say, well, what's the way of escape? Well, let me give you five. And you can start a list and you can add to it. Number one, control your thoughts. The way of escape in temptation is to control your thought life. Why do I put that first? Because James 1.15 tells us that sin begins at conception. Sin never happens when you finally do it. It happens when you have a thought about doing it. 
and you allow that thought to develop in your mind and stay there and conceive and begin to grow, and then it gives birth in your life. So if you're going to stop temptation, the easiest place to stop a temptation is in your thought life. 2 Corinthians 10.5 puts it this way, we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That thought comes into your mind, what do you do? You're to capture it and surrender it to Christ. If you dwell on it, if you allow it to develop, you could be in trouble. When it's in the thought phase, capture it and bring it captive to Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important to memorize Scripture because you are filling your thoughts with God's Word. And Psalm 119.11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Of course, the Bible tells us that the eye is the window of the mind. So if you're going to control your thoughts, you also need to control your eyes and what your eyes see because your thoughts often come from what you have just seen and they resonate in your mind. Job 31.1 says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I have made a covenant with my eyes not to do that because if I do that, it's going to start the thought process and the conception of sin. Proverbs 4.25 puts it this way, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. If you're walking along and you see an attractive, seductive woman, you can't help the fact that you see her. That's temptation. That's not wrong. What's wrong is the second look. What's wrong is the lustful look, the dwelling on that. That's the problem. If we're going to defeat sin, it has to happen in our thoughts. And so the first way of escape is to say, I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm going to capture that, that thought when it's just a thought rather than when it develops in my life. And then second area, second way of escape is to run. The next verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. There are some sins we just have to run from. In 2 Timothy 2.22, it says, flee youthful lusts. If you have a problem in a certain area of your life, maybe it's a sexual temptation, the, the best escape for you is to flee from that. Remember Joseph? He's in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife starts to flirt with him, and even gets so aggressive, she grabs hold of him and says, lie with me. And what does he do? He runs out of the house, leaves his coat in her hands. He flees from temptation. A lot of us never learn this. Even on the movies we watch, they usually come on ahead of time and say, this movie is filled with junk. It's going to ruin your spiritual thought life. And what do we do? Say, get some popcorn. Let's watch this. Let's let this come into our eyes and into our minds and fill us with all this stuff. 
we need to learn that God has provided a way of escape, and that way of escape is to flee. You cannot negotiate with lust. You can't stand around and, and work with it and justify it and try to argue with it. You need to run from that in your life. Third way of escape is to reduce the stimuli. Some of us have bait in our life that we seem to always lock on to. We're like the fish. We bite on the worm and we find the hook is in the worm. And some of us look back on our life and we see it's the same bait over and over and over again. We're so naive. In fact, some of us go to the bait shop and buy the bait. We like it so much. And we bring it home and we keep it in our house. Sometimes when you look at sin in your life, you realize, you know, that sin is always associated with this same stimuli. Maybe you ought to get rid of the stimuli. In Romans 13, 14, Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. No provision. Some of us pamper our flesh. We provide those things that are the stimuli that cause it to happen, and we need to get rid of those things. In Acts chapter 19, the city of Ephesus says they brought all their books of magic and put them together in a pile and they burned them all up. Well, it wasn't because there was something intrinsically wrong with those books. It was that those books were stimuli that caused them to sin. What is it in your life? Maybe it's the places you go. Maybe it's things that you have in your house. Maybe it's friends that you have that seem to always influence you the wrong way. Some of us need to bring some things from our past and put them together and burn them so that they no longer have that same effect in our life. Fourth way of escape is to make healthy friendships. Listen to Hebrews 3.13. It says, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest anyone be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's the answer to the deceitfulness of sin and ultimately being hardened by that sin? It's encourage one another. How are you going to encourage each other? You have to be together. You have to be around each other. You have to build healthy friendships. You have to have accountability with someone who can ask you tough questions and who you welcome into your life to say, are you still doing this? Are you loving your wife? What have you been thinking about this week? How's your thought life? You need to welcome people into your life who ask those tough questions because iron sharpens iron, as the Bible says. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Pursue after righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You know what it says next? Listen. Pursue after righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What's that telling us? We do it in community. We do it with other people who have that same passion and who are keeping us on track in that pursuit. Proverbs 13.20 says, He who walks with wise men 
becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Have you got somebody in your life that when you're experiencing temptation, you know you can call that person and say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm having a tough evening. I'm really, I just, something just came on the TV and got my thought life all screwed up and I, I'm in trouble. Can I talk for a minute? Can we get together for some coffee? Can I get away from here? Have you got somebody like that in your life? If you don't have healthy friendships, if you don't have somebody you're accountable to, you're probably in trouble in this area because you're too naive to the power of temptation. Let me give you one final way of escape, and that is prayer. Jesus said in Mark 14, 38, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Jesus said if you pray, it keeps temptation at bay. Isn't that interesting? Now what do we do when we're tempted? Often, as soon as we take the, same, the first step and we start willfully thinking about it, we start lusting in our heart, we start developing a, a game plan for sin, we immediately presume that God has left us and we're on our own. And all we're going to do is slide down this slippery slope and there's no way to change that. That's a lie from Satan. Because God is saying the way of escape is prayer. Pray ahead of time. When the temptation comes and you start to give into it, pray again and pray again. Let me, let me show you some verses. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. If you've never marked these verses, you really ought to. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. Two eighteen. listen. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Why was Jesus tempted in all the things you're tempted in? So that he can come to your aid when you're tempted. Look at chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. When we experience temptation, the lie that we hear is God will never understand. Guess what? Jesus has been tempted in everything you have been tempted in. We often think, you know, the way we understand temptation best is by giving in. That's not true. Because as soon as you give in, the temptation is over. I used to have a friend who said that. He said, I have no problem with temptation. I just give in. That's not the way of escape. Guess who understands temptation the best? The one who says, no, no, no. That's the person who understands temptation. So guess who understands temptation better than anyone else? Jesus. Because he was tempted in all things as you are, yet without sin, he said, no, 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 every time. So when you are tempted, guess who understands it? Jesus does. And we need to invite Him. When we start down that slippery slope, we need to cry out to Him because He knows exactly where you're at. He knows what you're going through. 
You say, well, I've already sinned and it's too late and I'm going down this slippery slope and I've been down it before and I know how it ends. It's hopeless. No. Even in the middle of that sin, we need to cry out to the Lord because what's the analogy? Sin begins at conception. It begins to develop in your life. It gives birth to sin and it results in death. At some point in that process, we need to learn to abort the sin. How do we abort it? By repentance. So it may be praying ahead of time, don't, Lord, don't let me fall for this temptation. It may be in the middle of the temptation when I say, Lord, I know you understand, so come to me and deliver me in the middle of this temptation. Or it may be at any point in that sin where I say, God, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to go back, and I'm not going to make it be every time I go down this road, I end up at the bottom. I'm going to stop in the middle of that process and trust that you are able to take care of me there. I entitled this message, Where is God when you need him? And the answer is real simple. He's right there. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter if you stiff-arm God to get there. He's still right there. God is faithful. He won't let you experience more than you can handle. And he will always give you that way of escape if you will call out to him and take it. Because temptation is common to man, I know that if you're honest today, you're struggling with something. You're struggling with a temptation in your life right now. I guess the question I would ask you is, are you willing today to say, Lord, I want you to come and minister to me in the middle of this. I want you to help me. I'm, I'm struggling with this because I'm really trying to do it myself. And I need you to come and take over. Would you make that your honest prayer today? That's what he desires to do. He hasn't turned his back on you. He's faithful. If you will repent, he will restore. And he will empower you for victory. I want you to stand with me. As we pray that prayer together, and as we close in the presence of the Lord.